Hello, thank you for joining us today. This is Teresa Freeman, your host of Relatable. Ooh, am I so excited about today's episode. Whether you're a teen or an adult, you can't help but fall in love with one of DC's most awesome comedians, Pete Bergen. We've been friends for a long time and he graciously offered up his time. Pete gets very real about his struggles in middle school with bullying and feeling like an outcast. He also talks about how one person, coincidentally my husband, changed the course of his high school experience. Pete talks about going into the military as his friends went off to college, and he talks candidly about his addiction and being sober, and also shares insights from his role as an improv coach to teens. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Uh, I'm very good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited that you're here today. And you and I have known each other a long time. You're one of my husband's best friends. And the reason I think we're going to have such a great conversation is that you've had an extraordinarily interesting life. And I think our listeners are going to benefit from your journey and from your experiences. So I appreciate you being here and talking with me. Well, I appreciate uh, getting a chance to visit with you. Excellent. So I'm going to go way back and ask you a little bit about your transition from middle school to high school. Um, some of our listeners are young adults that are in that same space, or there's parents listening that have young adults and they're curious about how uh, life is for them. And um, the purpose of this podcast is to really share truth and real experiences so that others can benefit from those experiences, maybe see themselves in you. Uh, and maybe take a different path or redirect based on on what you're sharing. Sure. So maybe we could just start there with that uh, um, experience for you in terms of going from middle school to high school. Well, middle school was fun for me. Um, you know how schools filter into each other. So a couple different elementary schools go into a middle school and then a couple different middle schools go into high school. So going from elementary school to middle school for me was great because I was a popular elementary school kid and I'm sure they do it with social media now, but back then it just sort of happened by osmosis where the popular kids would sort of gravitate towards each other and they became like a more formidable popular group thing and this is how clicks happen and this and the other. And I was part of that whatever cool or popular thing or whatever's important as a seventh grader. Uh, I was with those people and then towards the end of my seventh grade year there was a group of us that went to, somebody had like a, a beach house. Um, their family had a beach house, obviously, mm -hmm. we're in the 7th grade. And then there was alcohol being served. Um, and I didn't just say no to that. I, I, I took a hard stance and admonished those that took part in this, that, and the other. And, um, you know, it's just how I was raised and uh, at the time. And that was a mistake, apparently, because maybe a little bit at the end of the school year, but definitely over the summer and certainly by my 8th grade year, my place at that table of popular people uh, was no more. Um, and middle schoolers are, it's a terrible, terrible age. I mean, yeah. it, it was, it was, oh, he's not popular, let's beat him down. Or maybe I wasn't a nice person to some kids, so they took that as an opportunity for some retribution. Anyway, the eighth grade year for me was very tough. I went from being a very sociable, outgoing, fun-loving kid to somebody who really didn't speak during school hours to anybody for almost the entire school year. I was shocked. I was confused, uh, obviously sad, um, not to mention all the other physical and emotional changes that are happening to you at that age. It was right. a terrible, terrible time. So how did you deal with that in terms of like when you were at home, did you talk to anybody about that? No, did totally just... shut down, would spend a lot of time upstairs. I have a big family. Uh, I tried different personalities at school, like not really being true to myself, like to try to fit in with different groups. Um, my parents were very confused, uh, at a loss, that sort of thing. Um, and again, I don't know how kids do it today with social media because 
there doesn't even need to be an incident. I mean, you could leave school on a Friday and come back on a Monday and there's been a text message thread or an Instagram post or something and yeah. you're out. Right. Um, it's brutal. But, uh, no, my parents were confused. They, my dad was a, you know, old Marine Corps mm-hmm. colonel and solved problems and was very reticent to let me go to therapy, but that was a thing that he acquiesced. Now, that being said, every time he would drop me off and then pick me up, and then I would have to break down what we talked about, like, all the way home, which kind of defeats the purpose of therapy, Uh, uh, that sort of uh, trust that you have with your therapist. Um, And then my parents, God love them, thought I should go to a private high school, which was a... uh, short-sighted decision god bless him for trying to help but uh did you go to the private yeah i went to bishop ireton high school as a freshman so i don't know you have kids so 14 year olds are not the kind of people certainly not then maybe more so now are not the kind of people that are like wow this kid has really poor self-esteem and we've never met him and all of us here have gone to school together our whole lives and come from some privilege here comes this new kid uh, who doesn't talk a lot and has his head down. Let me go make him feel better. Like that's not something that really happens at 14. So it exacerbated everything. Like I was like the kid who would get his ears flicked and bullied and shoved and all that other stuff. My freshman year of high school was brutal. And I was crying out for help. I would like, uh, um, like leave articles of like kids in distress um, like open on the coffee table downstairs and I would like underline passages that were relevant to me and like these these were kids who were like taking matters into their own hands and winding up in the hospital or worse and like that's where I was uh, in my own life and just kept going to therapy and went back to public school most of that was because my academics suffered so much I don't think I would have been welcomed back to Bishop Ireton right um and then went back to public school my sophomore year. Where are you in your uh, sibling line? Like, I'm the youngest you're, of you're six the youngest kids. Of six. Yeah. So even your siblings, like there wasn't really, did you not feel like you could talk to anyone? Or well, is it just like natural, like if you're a boy and you're 14 to go in insular inside? No, I don't know if it's that. Well, also I'm the youngest. So at that age, my two oldest brothers were gone. My brother Danny was in the Marine Corps and moved out. My brother Tim was moved out um he's eight years older than me my sister maureen's away at college uh my sister Kristen is four years older than me so she probably just got i do have a sister who's a year older than me so she was probably pretty confused too but you know she's 15 she's got her own thing going on you know sophomore in high school that sort of thing so uh and i'm i'm wired and you know this about me i'm wired in a way where i don't want to put people out so i don't want to like bother anybody Uh. with stuff that's going on with me it drives my wife insane i will like um yeah keep it inside well it's like john mulaney says about irish people he's like we don't really share our feelings (laughs) um you know we bottle them up and then we die like that's uh, (laughs) right exactly so at any time during those two years or those couple of years you talked about putting out the articles like did you have suicidal thoughts were there one million percent i didn't want to say that but yeah i would find articles of kids who like who had committed suicide and and underline them and you know like this is where i am like right. your whole world you know not only was it i was alone but i went it was i went from being popular with tons of friends to being out like an outcast because of those friends so that you have to add betrayal into all that other stuff and the confusion of because i did the quote unquote right thing you know yeah. i followed my parents instructions and teaching and own instincts right. Uh, and it had disastrous effects, you know. Yeah. So, and that is such a. Um, I don't. I think people don't realize how how strong that experience impacts you lifelong, right? Just even because you're old enough that um, you clearly remember it, right? Even the way you're talking mm-hmm. about it now, it like I'm sure brings up stuff. So that time period, I think, is so stressful, and depending on your experience, can really form how you think about yourself what your self-talk looks like I'll, you know we've talked about some of the things on here about how important positive self-talk is and how just 
I don't know, you know, if you're bullied or if you feel less than or you're comparing yourself to other people or things are so important then, you don't have the perspective of bigger picture. Uh, so then how would you say, did you start to come out of that? Like what were some of the things that contributed to, to that? Um, well, like you just said, a lot of that still stays with me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that moving yeah. forward today. But um, the first thing that helped me is coming back to um, public school. I was, you know, not doing any better academically, marginally better socially, um, but I didn't have any real friends. And I just remember one day, one of my best friends from elementary school who was never like overtly mean to me or anything like that, I think was just like a, a smart, perceptive, sensitive kid and asked me to come sit with him and his friends at lunch. Oh. And that was your husband. Oh, so, really? yeah. So, um, but it was confusing for me because at that table were some other people like, again, we didn't say this, but in my eighth grade year, it wasn't that I was just out. There was a group called the I Hate Pete Bergen Club. And they had officers. Like they had a president, a vice president, which I can imagine you need for some structure. This is a one million percent true. Uh, I would name names of who it was, but they're probably fine professional men. But, um, but they also had a secretary treasurer, which I'm like, wait a minute, like how much momentum? Clearly they were just miming the the student government association right. structure. Right. right. But no, that was a thing. So the secretary treasurer of the I Hate Pete Bergen Club, who was like the nicest person ever, just got caught up in it as we do in middle school. Right. It was Jim Whalen. And uh yeah, and Jim oh I never let him live that down. Um Jim and Paul were at a table and like these were nice kids i knew that they were pop i even then i knew that they were popular but they didn't care about being popular which man what a cool thing like right. at that age right. you know when so many people are just so worried about their place on whatever social pyramid they're on um it's why i like working with theater kids is because they know who they are they're more self-aware right. and they're really they really really i'm not going to say don't care but other people's opinions of them are way down on the list yeah. of things that are important to them. And that's the sense I got from these guys at a very early age. So Man, that was instrumental, like to have a group of people and somebody to say, let me help. That's essentially what it was. Like it was somebody who got up, walked over, took the time to invite me, to you, include me. Do you think, um, did you and um, Paul know each other in middle school or not really? I can't. Honestly, I don't remember. Um, I remember so much more of elementary school than I do of middle school. Oh, okay. Um, I just remember middle school as hell, as like this dark, dark cloud of like right. confusion Black. and is so bad. But elementary school, Paul was one of my best friends. Okay. So yeah, we. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a young woman recently who talked about recently her best friend she had someone to eat with it was her best friend and then she left school and so she was eating alone for a good weeks months mm -hmm. and uh but she's an introvert and almost got to the point where she didn't really care <laughs> she was eating alone but had the sense of the optics of it and was like i need to like i'm a sophomore i need to figure this out and then she herself went and talked to someone about like joining their table but in the fear that that um consumed her and just the fact that there's someone and we talked about this on a couple of episodes just having one person sometimes just having another person that's reaching out to you so the fact that they um, did that and then you had a sense and so from there did you start to really belong to that unit and that group and then it was a more right but like my own ptsd from that experience would manifest itself in certain ways yeah. um i made darn sure that i was never going to be um, made fun of or uh, excluded from anything for not drinking or not being somebody who would party, you know what I'm saying? So I kind of wore that mantle. And I'm not saying like it was a, like I was, it was ringing false. Like I'm comfortable with people. I, you know, when I'm comfortable with people and to that thing you just made, like sitting by yourself have to like the optics of it. Yeah. I'm not going to say I'm an introvert because you know me, but sometimes I do like to sit alone, but it's so weird. I want to be asked to be included. Sure. Hey, can you do this? 
Thanks for asking. I'm good. Like, I just want to know that people want me around, Mm -hmm. and then that's enough for me. I don't really want to have to talk to somebody, um, you know, certainly about anything personal. Like, we can keep it based. Right, right. um, So, yeah, moving forward, I had a great group of friends, and some were great students, and some were really good athletes, and some were really good looking. And, of course, then and now, I feel less smart, less attractive, less athletic than all those people. But that's just like a, probably I was predisposed to that, but be my own middle school experience. Like it's always, it's, it's always still there. in the back so, of your mind. Um, but they were good guys. And, uh, and yeah. you were a part of sports, right? You played sports. I, you know, I played a lot growing up, but in eighth and ninth grade, I stopped doing everything. Um, and the only other sport I played was my senior year of high school, I was on the football team. Right. Didn't play that much, but... Um, Did I yeah. hear that you were solely responsible for a chant in the locker room? Is that a true story? Chant is <laughs> such a gross understatement. <laughs> I so, love this story. So, I mean, do you want me to yes. tell that story? Yeah, tell so, the story. my senior year of high school, I was on the football team. I was a late bloomer physically. I was probably like 5'9" and a half, maybe like 170 pounds. Uh, this is a podcast, so you can't see that I'm much bigger than that now. Uh, 6'2 and more. Um, but I just didn't play that much. I was not a very physical kid. I didn't, uh, I really wanted to take theater. Yeah. Okay, I really wanted to, but I had just made this incredible comeback socially. I was just yeah. too scared. I was too scared. And this is what I tell kids because I work with theater kids. This is what I tell them. Um, But I was too scared to do it. So I played football because my friends played football. And, you know, it was... Socially acceptable. And and I wasn't good at it, but it was fine. But I always got a kick out of the people that were consumed by football. Like screamers and like with headbutt lockers and like that sort of thing. just so... It's funny to me. Like it's funny to me. Logically, I know if that's what it takes to fire you up, bravo. But if that's what it takes to fire you up... (laughs) You can see my therapist when I leave, okay? So um, I gave a pregame speech before a game. Again, the the funny part is it's coming from somebody who never plays, all right? And I gave it in this, like, I was challenging people's manhood. And I was like, (laughs) listen, guys, all right? We've had a tough season, all right? But guess what? This is our first district game. We win districts. We go to regionals, right? We're 0-0 right now, all right? So I don't want to see anybody drag... Can I curse on you? Sure. No, drag an ass out there and this, that, and the other. And I, as I launch into it, I can see Paul's face <laughs> and Jim's face. And they're kind of like, is he really doing right, this? Because right. they know, they know that I'm doing a bit. Right. But the real, like, meathead players on the team and the coaches, they were like, yeah, oh, no. this is what I'm talking about. And I'm like, now listen up. When we leave this locker room and I'm I'm slamming lockers, I'm punching things, and I would like I got in this one kid's face, I go, Let me see your game face. And he was like clearly confused. I go, Let me see it. And he's like, ah I go, and he's not scaring me, all right? And this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of apathy that is gonna doom us from the and like I'm slamming it's on lockers. And on. It goes on and on. It's a solid five minutes. <laughs> Which is doesn't sound like it's a, it's a long time to sit in a bit right. where you are the focal point of an entire high school football team and the coaching staff. You just went for it. Oh my god! At the end of it, the coach came up. He's like, "And this is what I'm talking about, man." And everyone's like, "Yeah, hell yeah!" And he goes, "And he doesn't even play." And I was like, <laughs> "Wow! Like we gotta like get that in there." Like like it was like anyway. People, it wound up tearing ass out of the locker room. Your husband set the high school Mount Vernon record at the time for the longest interception return for a oh, touchdown yeah, in a yeah. game at Lee. We still uh, talk about that. Oh yeah, yeah I think that like record's that. been passed now. Yeah, so. yeah. that's uh, okay. Uh, it's good family folklore. Right. Tangent. The the funniest part about Paul, who was a really good high school football player, uh, is the shoulder pads he wore were so big because he's not a big guy. They were massive. Have you seen pictures? Yes. Massive. It's just this tiny little Beetlejuice head <laughs> popping out under there. Uh, but it was it was great, and I just remember everybody. The funniest part to me was everybody left the locker room. Paul and Jim and even Huck, they would not make eye contact with me. They were like, "Oh, oh my god. god, oh my god, make it stop, make it stop." <laughs> and they ran out. And then the last person there was I was in the locker room, and I was the last one to leave, except for one coach, Randy Slack. And he looked at me and he just goes, 
douchebag. And I'm like, he knew. Because <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was young. He was like 26. At the time, yeah. it was like, that's Coach Slack. But in hindsight, I'm like, he was only like 26 years old. Right. That guy knew I was doing a bit. Um, and that was probably the beginning of this whole... It's the funniest thing I've ever done to date. I've performed <laughs> for thousands of people. That's the funniest thing I've ever done. I'm more proud of that bit than anything I've done on stage in my life. I love it. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. All right, so you have so much to talk about in terms of your experiences, but just as we depart high school for you, first yes. of all, what a great comeback story in terms of that resilience. And I think resilience is such an important characteristic for everyone as you're navigating your way through life and just, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs. So as you leave high school and you think back on that, um, in, in terms of successes or things that you maybe wish you had done a little bit different or better, um, what advice would you give to your high school self? Well, successes, I would say I would give myself a little credit and pat on the back for the trust. You know, mm -hmm. when somebody took the time to come over and say, come sit with us for me to say, okay, half of that was probably desperation, but I could have easily just said, no, I'm good when I was so clearly not good. Right. So, um, Allowing yourself to be helped, I think, is a hard thing to do. And one of the things I think I'm good at from that time is I'm, I take pride in the fact that I am good at putting a child in a position to succeed without making it look like I'm trying to. Because kids who are having a tough time are hyper self-aware and sick to death of adults either trying to help them or trying to saying something like it's just high school it's not that big a deal high school is your whole world I, an academic year is 10 years yeah. to a high school kid right. as it like as at my age your age it flies by now right. but then it's forever like yeah. you marking off the days between holidays yes. or breaks you know totally. um what would i do different i mean i would do a million things different it's just at 14 everything's so terrifying and when you are burned and ostracized and uh feel so inadequate all the time it's so hard you know i can't like sit here like tom cruise and say well just go for a jog and you'll feel better <laughs> like that's not how certainly right. my mental health issues work but um what about i would ask for help more yeah i would ask for help more like we talked earlier like what about your siblings what about like, i didn't talk to anybody like i would ask for help more as somebody who puts a premium on communication now like Mm -hmm. um, I think most people ha want people to do well. Yeah. So certainly those in your family. Um, yeah, they have your best interests in heart. So also, it's like when you're on stage, if what you're doing isn't working, then maybe do something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So What about grades? So you haven't talked much about that. Was that ever... They're uh, terrible. Did you... Because I think... So I have a feeling about just our education system and how it's built around sort of one type of learning. And if you're good at that type of learning and you're fairly self-motivated, it's a great system for you. But there's a lot of us that it's not a great system. And I think what's difficult is uh, recognizing that in high school, if you're someone that's not, that doesn't come easy to, or you struggle, this availing yourself of help or the importance of it, balancing that with Maybe you don't know how it's impacting you today, but in the future, it gives you choices, right? You have more choices in terms of doors opening and closing. So I'm, I'm and you're, you've take, you have a, a very interesting career and a path that's very different. So if you look back, do you think, I wish I had done better at school or worked more in grades? Or do you feel like, you know what, given your strengths and who you are and where you ended up, it was, it was what it was? No, I think it's a combination of the two. Like I was a terrible student. Your husband was my best man at my wedding, and he said in the speech, I'm the smartest person who gets the worst grades. Uh, and I think a lot of that is, you know, I had great grades in elementary school because everything came easy to me. I didn't have to do any work. I always learn things faster than most people, but I don't usually learn things better than most people. Like my sister, who's not quite a year older than me, I would always learn things before she did. 
but she had a better work ethic. Is that because things didn't come easy for her and right. she had to? Maybe. Um, you know, they didn't have ADD when I was in high school. They just called it, crap, that kid's annoying. <laughs> so, right. Sit uh, your ass down. Right. right. Even focus. like, but even in elementary school, like I didn't, like, I acted out. I'm not going to say, I was put in like a future leaders thing. Like I was identified by faculty as like a future leader and it's a very select thing. And I was like, this is nerdy. And I managed to get myself kicked out, you know, because I was just, yeah. even then, like, right. so, um, yeah, I was a bright guy. I, I, I could have, it's, I have a hard time reconciling my lack of discipline academically with the fact that, you know, I did go on and I'm sure we're talking about it and be yes. in the military. Like I just work better with structure uh, and accountability than here's this thing, go do it. And then turn it in on Monday. I'm like, you know, right. I was just a terrible, I didn't apply like the myself. system, right? That kind of system. Well, I'm not going to blame think... on the system. Like, I mean, every, a lot of us go through that same system. Right. Were there alternative measure, alternative methods to learn? Like maybe some sort of Montessori education or something like that? Perhaps, but I just didn't know anything about right. that, uh, you know? Right. Yeah. So, all right. So let's say uh, you graduated now, and what was your path forward? What What did you, when you're a senior in high school, when you're looking ahead, what are you looking at? What What did you want to do? I assumed I would go to college, but I did so poorly in the classroom. Uh, my options were severely limited. I had my sister, who was a year older than me, was um, at Radford, where okay. your husband yeah. went to school. Um, I had another sister who. Uh, graduate uh who graduated from virginia tech all my friends were going away to school you know all my friends were very good students um so i was like so i decided to go to nova right and i will kick butt there and then i'll be able to transfer into a four-year school i don't know what i was thinking like if i'm not driven and self-motivated enough to do well I'm certainly not going to get up and drive a half hour to, you know what I'm saying? So that fell apart quickly. Right. And then I was certainly directionless. And then one day I, uh, with no consultation with my parents whatsoever, uh, walked into an army recruiting office and talked to them. And uh, I signed up and joined the army. Wow. Just because I, even then I was like, this is not going well. Like I'm going to go and get some structure and some discipline and um, money for college was a big thing at the time. Nice. Um, and then I came home and told my parents and they were, even though my dad was a career Marine Corps officer, he could not have been happier. Like he saw me as a directionless kid. He was there for most of my, for most of all of my struggles in middle right. and early high middle school and early high school. So he was, he was on board with that decision. So. Okay. So you, and that's just the fact that you, did you talk to any of your friends about it or nope. you just did it? I did it one you day. just did it. So then how quickly after you sign up are you going? Is it like, uh, I want to say it was like, no, it was like four or five months. Okay. So. And then how was that experience? How long were you in? What was that? I signed up for an enlistment that I don't think they offer anymore. It was like a two plus two. It was two years active duty, two years and 24 months. I'm sorry, two years and 24 months. That is two years. Uh, it was two years and two months active duty plus two years in the reserves um and then you get to but the only reason i chose that was because i wanted to get in get my college money and get out and go back to school okay. um and there were very limited options for that short enlistment i could have either been in the infantry or i could have been a mechanic okay. and i'm like oh i'll learn a trade again not having any sense of self-awareness like um, like one thing I am good at is like being sort of a leader and a manager of people. So the infantry probably would have been a better way for me to go. And I was, I could accomplish things physically that some people couldn't back then because I had grown, I was bigger, I was stronger. Um, but I went as a mechanic, um, which was hard because you have to study and learn how to do that. Right. I don't have study habits, but I definitely thrived on the regimented the wake up at this time, do this, the physical part of it, the uh, the teamwork part of it, like um, that is the like the frustrated theater kid in me, you know, that's teamwork is another word for ensemble, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I thrived on that, you know, being the rally rah-rah person, 
getting everybody, you know, fired up to do things. And then, so I did my eight weeks of basic training, which were, everybody hated basic training. I loved basic training. Hmm. All you had to do was get up, do what they told you, all right, and be 10 minutes early. Hmm. Like it was the easiest thing, right? Very specific. It was so great. It was so great. It's like run 10 miles. Okay, bye. Like, what are your, you you have to do it. There's no options. Like. There's no like, well, why or how come or why don't you have to do it? Like, just go do it. Like, right. it, just, it was so easy. Um, and then you have 14 weeks of uh, individual training where you learn your trade. Um, mm-hmm. And then you get assigned to wherever you're stationed. I was assigned to Germany. I didn't want to go to Germany. But at the time, you could switch overseas assignments with somebody. And this kid got assigned to Panama and did not want to go there because we had just invaded. I'm like, I'll go. So I switched. I went to Panama, spent two years there. Um, again, thrived on the the regimented, mm-hmm. the time, the itinerary part of it, the physical part of it. I did not take to the skill that my job required, but I found ways around that. Not like in like a shady way, but mm-hmm. I'm like, if I apply myself in other areas. So I represented my unit in competitions, which I knew if you win, you get to do different jobs like be somebody's driver or be on the 60 team for the unit or this and the other. So I just represented my unit in competitions and spent two years there and really thrived. Uh, Certainly the first year, the second year, those behaviors of like party guy, fun guy, probably inhibited uh, some of my growth potential Mm. Um, just because I would get drunk and get in fights and uh, get in trouble. But I had been I'd such an achiever up to that point. I never suffered any real discipline. It was like, all right, this is an aberration. Mm. We'll let this go. All right, this one's an aberration. We'll let this go. And the third time, it's like, all right, this is the third time in a year. Um, maybe stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but by that time, I was due to either get out of the army or I had a chance to reenlist. And I was like, I'm liking this. I'm going to reenlist. Um, I missed another opportunity because when you re-enlist the first time, you can either choose where you go or have an opportunity to change your job. I wanted to, I should have changed my job. I chose to go to Fort Meade, Maryland, which back at that time was now drawing down. They could not honor my re-enlistment request. So they were going to either send me to Kentucky or Washington, or they said, we can let you out. We can give you an honorable discharge because we cannot honor the terms of your reenlistment. I'm like, yeah, just let me out. I'll go to school. Mm. So you mentioned partying, which I think we can talk about. But did did you party a lot in high school too? Like, yeah, you, you did. So mm-hmm. that's kind of started after the whole nobody should be drinking. Right, right, right. I made sure <laughs> that that would never happen again. Right. Yeah, so yeah, then yeah. partied hard in high school, mm-hmm. and then that actually in the military as well like when you're off or when you're you're sure you, yeah you, there's- I'm, i mean i'm in panama 19 there's no drink the drinking age is 18 yeah. i could walk to the store and buy beer they would deliver it there uh did you notice at that point that you're drinking a lot compared to other people or is it just like you're in it everybody's partying i was certainly trying to drink more than other people because i it seemed to get a nice response yeah so uh, but any notion of it being a problem right. or anything like that was not on my radar okay. at all. Yeah. So then you leave, and what happens next? I, I uh, move in with my brother in Woodbridge, and I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to Nova, and I'm going to work in a restaurant and make money. Um, that lasted for one semester because <laughs> uh, I liked yeah. the money I was making in the restaurant business. Um and then moved out from my brothers, worked at a different restaurant, started tending bar, um, making like really good money, like good early mid nineties money, you yeah. know, making $1,200 cash a week, that sort of thing. Right. As a 24 year old uh, person with unlimited access to alcohol, plus the status that comes with standing behind the bar three or four nights a week, right. or perceived status, is right. no real status. Right. But yeah. Um, so that that put us that took center stage. I mean, right. it was. And when did you start? Which we haven't talked about yet. But in terms of comedy and your interest in theater and the arts and all of that, when? Not even then. No. Not, so no. I, that was that much later. Yeah. So, I um no, I was just, you know, the guy who, you know, was 
Big Pete behind the bar. Right. Fun Pete. Um, um, knowing logically, like, you know, everybody goes home and puts their head down at some point. You know, I knew. I'll speak, I'll speak for anybody else. Yeah. Like, my life is not moving forward at this point, you know? I know my friends are now college graduates and getting into their fields. Um, I'm, I hate to say just bartending because it's a great job and people have made their living on it for years. But, like, I know I can, I have more to offer. Right. Um, um, and that, and bartending, when you said you're like big Pete behind the bar, you're getting, during those six or eight hours, you're getting a ton of attention. You're mm-hmm. getting a lot of positive feedback, right? Just in terms of probably female attention. You're also getting like, everybody wants to be friends with the bartender, right? Mm-hmm. So you just get a lot of positive reinforcement. Yeah, there's a lot of status back there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and the longer you do it and the more comfortable you get at it, and I'm good at it anyway. I, I'm good at customer service mm-hmm. and I'm pretty good at reading people and knowing my audience and what they want to hear and this, that, and the other. And um, yeah, it was, it was good. But the, the, the downside is, you know, there's a lot of access to alcohol. There's a, certainly back then there was a lot of access to drugs and I took to all of it. Were you, do you think vulnerable to it in any particular way other than, you know, an addictive personality or is it just given your station and other people are moving on and you're in this place. So you're like, I'm just going to drink and do a lot, you know, to like, I think it's a combination of everything. Yes. I do think I have some predisposition to it. I think I have some family history that leans into, you know, that sort of addictive behavior. Uh, I also know that again, my own PTSD from my middle school experience and just the, the, like you said, the positive response you get, like everyone seems to like this version of me. Uh, I like it. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with what I'm doing. I'm just, it's big Pete. We're partying. It's what we do, you know? Um, but it became less about a social recreational fun thing to a necessary thing. And, you know, physically I'm now, you know, at this point in my life coming up on 340, 350 pounds. Um, like, I think that's when I met you, I think. So, um, you know, I'm again, just like any troubled kid is hyper self-aware. Any addict is also hyper self-aware. You can put on a that thin veil of mm-hmm. like faux confidence, but it's pretty. You can see through it. It it falls apart very quickly. So and so, how much time are you like partying and, and to where you get to this point where you're like it's an issue? I knew it was an issue by the time I was maybe so you know twenty four to twenty eight. You know, the first couple of years were fun and social. By the time I was 28 or 29, like I knew it was an issue and I quit every day. Mm. So like every, I'm not, yeah, like I'm, today's I'm the last day, not doing it today, but that was another two years of daily promises, you know, and then you break the promise and feel like crap. And then how do I not feel like crap? I'm just going to drink and go back to this social acceptance or whatever right uh, um yeah and then did you have a rock bottom or did you have a moment where you it was uh, you know my recovery speak will say there's no such thing it, addicts have jackhammers there's no rock bottom right. it can always get worse blah 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 um but i didn't have any meaningful relationships i lied to everybody i was in crazy debt i was 350 pounds um i had moved like five or six times in 18 months um and is anyone in your family noticing or any friends? How would I like... know? I mean, how would I yeah, know? you're not even. And talking to uh, Paul, he's like, I knew something was wrong. He's like, because I never heard from you. Again, self-aware. I know what I look like and sound like and what my station in life says, you know? Yeah. I don't want anybody looking at me too close. I'm certainly not going to initiate that. I'm going to hang out with people who think like I think and do what I do because it's safer. Uh-huh. Um, uh, interesting. And I just remember whatever, one day finally calling one of my siblings and saying, I need to talk to you. I don't want to talk to everybody. Get everyone together as soon as you can. And because I don't want to have this conversation five times. What is it? What is it? Don't worry about it. And then I started getting calls. I'm like, just get everyone together. Right. I just want to talk to you. And I feel bad because I think that I know that was on a Friday and that conversation didn't happen until a Monday. So they had to go all weekend. I'm sure talking amongst themselves. Like, what is it? And then I said, listen, I'm pretty sure I'm a drug addict. I'm, I've tried to stop. I can't. This and this is said through a lot of tears and a lot sure. of shame. Obviously, now 17 years later, I know that that was a very brave thing for me yes. to do. 
but um, it was embarrassing. I was ashamed, and I wasn't saying put me in rehab. I was just saying I need help. I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Is how I felt, which I is one million percent sure I would be dead by now. Um, and there was a lot of hugs and crying, and oh my gosh! And we went from there, and the next night. I went from there and told my then girlfriend of four years, who I managed to hide that entire lifestyle from, which is also an exhausting thing. Right. Uh, and the next night we all went over and told my parents, which was a Tuesday. And then by that Friday, I was in a treatment center in Florida. Wow. And how so long were you? 15 days. 15 days. I just want to comment on one thing that you said, because I think it's so powerful about surrounding yourself with like a commonality to keep yourself safe or to avoid certain things. And I think this is such a common trapping at any age where you, um, it's, it's sometimes easier to fall back on what's comfortable and around people that feel, and I'm using air quotes, safe, but it's really limiting your own potential, your own ability to see past kind of whatever thing you're struggling with or you know so I think that awareness of just checking in on yourself adult or young adult if you're doing if you're doing that right are the people like Paul will always say his dad said you know show me your friends will show you your future so who are you who are you surrounding yourself with what kind of choices are you making are you around people that are pushing you to be better mm -hmm. or are you around people right and the fact that you had your family I mean is amazing and the fact that you I mean I don't I don't know a lot about addiction and recovery, certainly not to the extent that you do, but the fact that you self-motivated. I called my own intervention. I mean, that's right. Like, how, like, that's amazing. And again, I feel like it's this one, I mean, you've told now a lot of stories about being pretty self-aware and in tune, whether it was like a horrible time or like a happier time, like you seem to be pretty in tune with what's going on with you and the fact that you knew there was something more for you and better for you and you wanted more for yourself. So I think that's such a great message and an inspiration to, if you're feeling it and if you're thinking it, you should do that. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfasoftskills.com for more information. Well, it's also what you said about, it's one thing I tell so what I'm sure we're going to do is right now I work with primarily middle and high school kids, yes. theater students primarily, and I teach comedy. And the hardest class for me out of those is always first year theater students in middle school because half of them aren't quote unquote theater kids yet. It's usually young men. It's a very much tougher age for young men than young women. Um, and I always say, go stop sitting with the same people because a middle school any any sort of middle school gathering in a theater class it's usually two to one young women to young men but there if there's 30 kids in a class eight of them are boys and they're all sit together okay yes so and then the same girls sit together and there's you know i go sit with different people sit mix it up like i'll go to do you know this person no i go you guys have been to school together all year you don't know each other you've been in this class together all year you don't know each other you know, I, I can go on and on about how that's going to make your theater experience less and make you a less well-rounded artist. But I just go, like, why? Like, and I go, you guys are thinking, oh, well, so-and-so is weird or so I don't like that person. I go, I venture to say you have not sat with that person and talked to them for five minutes. Right. All right. So, and again, that that is either directly or indirectly pulling from my experience where Paul came and reached out to me. I go... Yeah, but if somebody's like by themselves in a theater class, that should not be a thing, all right? I always say our main jobs as actors and improvisers is to be a good listener and make everybody else look good. Don't worry about making yourself look good because right. that's usually coming from a place of fear, so. Yeah, I think, and the more you can say that and, and I think the more as adults we can uh, reaffirm that message and communicate that it's so important because it's such an insular time like you are so inside yourself and you only have one view it's inside out inside out you the bubble you can't even right. like so to step outside yourself uh, it, it's but it's good for you and for the other person it's right? so brave too at that again mm -hmm. I always say to kids that you do is more important than how you do don't yes. not do because participating is Love habit that. forming yes. so is not participating so step out be open yeah all right don't do for the sake of doing like just you know do more so for you coming out of treatment and 
I'm interested in your journey to doing stand-up and then to where you are today where now you're doing a lot of different things mm -hmm. but because um, that requires such bravery <laughs> and as someone who was really self-conscious and had these traumatic experiences about fitting in and feeling wanting to feel part of things and liked I think as a comic it's it's got to be so vulnerable and you're opening yourself to so much rejection so how did you get there how do you I had right before I went to rehab I was had been like writing jokes for a friend of mine who did stand up okay. and like helping him but his voice was a lot different than mine so like about six months before I went to rehab I started doing stand up and I was you know, I was a new comic. I wasn't a good comic, but I was good for somebody who just started. Um, but then when I went away, all that went on hold. Obviously, I had to focus on some other things. Um, then I got back into stand-up, and then I also got into improvisational comedy, which is a punchline to a lot of people. I like it because I like the idea of a team, of mm -hmm. an ensemble. I'm objectively a better stand-up than I am an improviser, but... Um, there's something cool about having a good improv show and being able to high five your uh, your teammates, you know. You, yeah, um, collaborative. But there's something cool about stand up because as an addict or an instant gratification or validation addict, which I am, uh, <laughs> there's something really cool about in the moment. That's why I like shining shoes. You know, it's like dirty, clean. Ah, <sighs> it feels good. It's like scratching an itch. Right. So I can go on stage and get a laugh. Like I know I, I can always get a laugh. It's like, do I want to get a laugh? you know, doing a joke that works. It's really cool when I get a laugh doing a new joke. And if I get no laughs doing a new joke, then I'll just finish with a joke that works. Like, I'm going to get a laugh while I'm on stage. So the very first time you did it, can we talk about that? Sure. Like, how old were you? Where did you do it? How much material did you have? And what was that like? Uh, I was at Wise Acres Comedy Club, which is no more. It was in Tyson's. It was in the Best yeah. Western Hotel. Uh, this is at a time when there was very few open mics in D.C. Um it was daunting. There were some really good people, people who are still making their living in comedy yeah. uh, um, there. And I did like three or four minutes. And I just remember um, an interview with Eddie Murphy where he talked about the first time he did stand up. And Eddie Murphy did it when he was like seven. Uh, and he said, you know, you just talk about what you know. He goes, I was seven. The only thing I knew about was taking a shit. So I did like five minutes on me taking a shit. Um, I knew a little bit more about that. But uh I talked a lot about, ten, I, I think most of my stuff was about tending bar and about being fat because that's something I did and something I was. Right. Um, you know, people respond to honesty. So uh, it did well. You did. And so, you got some laughs. And mm -hmm. what does that feel? Is that like It a felt rush? great. It yeah. felt great. And then the second time I did stand up, I was at a place called Nanny O'Brien's in D.C., which is still there but doesn't do stand up. And that's the first time I ever saw like the comics table. Mm. So you hear about it in places like New York and L.A. There, I'm sure there's one in every city. But at this comics table was people that, you know, as somebody new to comedy, I, I had even already heard of, right? So, and there'll never be another table like this in Washington, D.C. again. And I'll rattle some names off and your yeah. listeners can Google them. Right. But there's Rory Scovel, who makes his living in comedy as mm -hmm. a stand-up and actor. There's Aaron Jackson, who makes her living in comedy. There's Ryan Connor, who makes his living in comedy. Um, and John Mumma, who, if he chose to, could make his living in comedy. Um, and the thought of going to that table was terrifying. There's no way I would go to that. And these are not mean people. They're not, it's not their job to reach out to me. But the headliner was a guy named Eric Myers. And God, he was so good. He did like 20 minutes. And I'm like, who am I kidding? I'll never do that. But Eric, God love this kid. He came up to me afterwards and he's like, is this really your second time? Uh, doing stand-up I go yeah he goes man he goes you're good oh like and that, that carried me for like the next three years so I'm like yeah. Eric Myers just said I was good Eric Myers who headlined a show and after all these other great people right. told me I was I was like it's like it is really like a thing of like let's throw the rope back to people you know like if I catch myself on an open mic being short with somebody or like d dismissive you know I try not to, like, I'll try to catch myself because right. it, it can make all the difference. Yeah. You so. never know, like, what your words or how they can inspire another person. Mm -hmm. And um, so how long then, um, were, at any point from when you started, like, after you come out from a treatment and then you kind of get back into it, was there any point that you were like, I'm quitting and I can't do this? Or have you... Quitting what? Comedy and the no, arts. No, what it you, was... Um, have you always now, for the last 10 years or so, 15 years, been pretty diligent 
Um, I, I'm probably more serious about it now. I know I'm more serious about it now than it ever happened. It was like something I did. So I did stand up a little bit and then the proximity of where I attended bar, uh, at the time in Washington, DC was right next to the America's most wanted offices, the show America's most right. wanted. Somebody came in and said, Hey, I heard you do stand up. Do you act? Oh yeah, I do lie. Um, nice. Anyway, I wound up auditioning for and getting a principal role on America's Most Wanted. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, you've been on movie sets, TV right. sets. It's right. it's cool as somebody who is like a pretty snotty film goer yeah. uh, and pretty pretentious movie watcher like myself. It's really cool to be able to take part in that creative process. And again, the collaborative part of it, uh, everything else. Uh, obviously, I was getting into improv at that point. So that was all working for me. But I kind of like pulled back from stand-up. Uh, a lot uh, and did a lot of improv. Mm -hmm. I teach for a theater in DC. It's what I do for work during the day uh, now. But as far as stand up, I've done more stand up these last six months than I mm -hmm. have probably the previous 10 years combined. Okay. So, and just would you say though, well, and I uh, kind of two questions because you mentioned the bartending. So, is it extremely unusual or is it that you just have, um, sort of the strength of like steel that you're in an environment if you're an addict and you're in that bartending environment where all of that is available to you it seems like masochistic in a way oh no <laughs> that, that's not an uncommon thought and to your first point it's not uncommon there's yeah. there are restaurant employee specific recovery groups that meet wow in dc yeah. because i mean i would i don't know the numbers but i would wager you know the numbers of people in recovery coming from the restaurant business are higher than other mm. industries. Just guessing. Um, so I don't think it's like this great... I was just done. I was just done. Right. Um, uh, and you've never had um, a period of where you wanted to go back to it? You've sure. Had, have you had slips? Sure I have. No, no. But like I've definitely wanted to. Most of my slips come... I'm also very open about it. Here I am talking to the world right. on a podcast. But... I just find that that's not being a braggart. It's account of it's just more eyes on me. Mm -hmm. So the more people I tell, the only really dicey times come for me. Like if I'm out of town doing comedy and I'm in a hotel by myself, because there's really no fear of consequence. There's nobody watching me. That sort of thing. Right. Right. Okay. And then, um, at what point did you um, meet your now wife in this process? Like I met my wife almost. Um, I guess about 10 years ago. Okay. So. And then how long did you all date before you got married? And... Well, we had mutual friends and she was super... The idea that she would go out with me was so... It's, you know, it's like you think you're going to get hit by lightning. Like, there, that's the odds. Um, so I kind of crushed on her and hoped she would notice me for like a year. And then finally we went out. There's some debate over who initiated that. It was mm. clearly me. Um, and then we went out for about three or four years and we are now coming up on our six-year wedding anniversary she's a wonderful human being i mean she's come the on. best I'd better than everybody and everybody. for someone who maybe is had some trust issues and given some of your background and like was that difficult to fully commit and to be in not to her oh god no i mean yeah. you 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 don't you don't win the Powerball and say I don't like the way the ticket looks. You know, like yeah. you. I mean, you know, you know when something great is there. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, and then let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now with young adults because I think that's super cool, and you and I have similar interests in terms of trying to help and develop young adults. So well, what I do is I hire myself out. I'm mm -hmm. self-employed. Yeah. Um, Really to anybody who wants it, but mostly it's middle and high schools, mostly in Fairfax County. I've been all over the yeah. D.C. area, but I teach improvisational comedy workshops to middle and high school theater students. But I, for better or for worse, bring my own middle school experience and high school experience into that because I know it's such a tough age. So right. good or bad, if all things are equal, I'm going to err on the side of the kid who I think is having a tough time. Not that I'm going to be mean to the popular or good looking or whatever, the person who's higher on the social ladder. Right. But if I think somebody could use a break, again, I'm good at making it look like you've earned that. 
without making it look, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm good at putting you in a position to succeed mm-hmm. without making it look like I'm doing you a favor or charity or something right. like that. I can, I can bring out the best in somebody so they feel like a sense of worth and accomplishment. So, and I do find that it's theater students are more keen to be perceptive to that, more like welcoming of mm-hmm. that sort of energy. Um, and again, getting getting a middle school person who's not into it to be receptive to it is like a win for me. No one's going to be a great improviser after a three or four day workshop, but if they're willing to try more, do more, be more accepting, then I'm fine with that. And you are teaching improv. That's what you're doing with mm-hmm. these groups. And is it typically a multi-day event? Yes. Okay. How, like what's, what is, it depends. how does it typically work? It, it, you know, some people will hire me for three days and mm-hmm. depends if they have block scheduling, which is either 50 minute class or 90 minute class. So it varies. Um, some schools hire me more. Uh, I'm at a school this weekend, next week for mm-hmm. a lot of days, but they're all 50 minute classes. So they're right. shorter classes. Um, and Fairfax County is such a diverse it's really unfair how how much money some schools have versus how little some others have, given that it's the same school system. Um, but yeah, it's usually anywhere from two to five days. That I'm and at how big are the groups that you're typically working? Class with? size, so you know, twenty to thirty. And when you're just because now you have this unique perspective, and if you're a parent and you're listening to this, like, what are some of the things that you are seeing? Um, with this generation of kids like in terms of I know you talked a lot, a lot about um, just maybe the social pressure but is there anything else that you're seeing that's unusual or different than when we were kids? Well obviously social media and the yeah. unhealthy attachment to phones I don't know how they're allowed yeah. in school like yeah. that's very old man of me yeah. <laughs> to say that right. Um, right. like they should be they shouldn't be on you during class Right. I mean that's I don't I don't know if that's old or whatever. They shouldn't be on you. But just everything that that contributes to attention span or lack thereof, you know, these bright colors are bright for a reason on your phone, okay? Right. So right. Um, just having to find ways to bring more different kinds of stimulus to people, set and the other. Um, what other things are different about kids today? Sadly, not enough. Like they still click up. They still are very scared. You know, they're acting like they're not. You know, and I could right. I could bore a kid to death with this. Listen, I get why you're not doing this. You don't want to jeopardize your place on whatever social pyramid you are, but I find you'll be a better person if you do participate. <laughs> they don't want to hear all that, right. right? They're like, you're you're dumb. This is dumb. This isn't for me. All right, well, you signed up for a theater class twice. Like, you you clearly like it, okay? So um, just the, the fear. It's such a tough age. So what, it makes me really appreciate an open kid who's ready to be vulnerable and share and oh my god a kid who can take direction you know there's there's a lot more of why and how come with kids now mm-hmm. than there was when I was like there's not a, I don't remember ever having a debate with a teacher right. of mine right. where I was like well how come because I said so right how about just, that right. well you don't have no I don't have to because I'm an adult right all right so yeah I think that's something I would regard as a negative you know well, we want our kids to think and great or they could just shut up and listen you know so i just thought of this too as you're working with them have you found because you talk a lot about communication have you found any tools or anything that you're doing that works well to get kids to open up and be vulnerable is there anything that you're deploying or any skill that you're using that helps to break that down a little I, bit i try to and this is more theatrical than in life but yeah. i try to say um matching energies so if everybody's crazy nobody is so be a generous performer like and like I I'll, again I challenge the young man I go nobody would buy a ticket to one of your games all right to see you kind of do something or almost do something nice. so give more because then it gives permission to the person next to you to give more so I have some exercises where they like I'll have them face away from each other and I'm like make this face and I'll, t- I'll challenge one person to make a face and they're like make it more feel this way be very mad now um turn around and then i'll have the other one do what they're doing all right now they're both doing that i go now how would someone like that talk great now we're both talking like that so just matching energies um but you just get one person to give a little bit um because energy begets energy right apathy begets apathy it's you know i always 
if someone's standing with their arms folded, I go, you look terrified or judgmental. It's a bad, it's bad posture. Right. I go, stand up, be open. It'll make the next thing you do easier. Yeah. So. You know, it's so interesting. I think with, um, you talked a long time ago, I think in this conversation about your own issue with like maybe doing theater or doing something in the arts, but being pulled to football because that's when everyone else did. And I imagine if there are kids in your, and I'm sure you see this, but that are part of it because they want to be, but they're still afraid to engage or participate in it. And so the fact that you have this perspective of being able to influence that and be able to say, it's okay to be both. You can be an athlete and be someone like my one son is in course. He's really good. And I want him to stay with it. And he's starting to feel, I think that pressure. And I also think teachers impact some of that too. And he had a great middle school teacher, you know, so there's a teacher component, but really it's, no one else is doing it, and I think he's starting to feel pressure. He's an athlete, right. so it's just, and it's just, it's so, the arts are so important in so many ways, and it gets to work different aspects of your brain, and, and it's such a helpful tool as you evolve in life and in business. There's so many things you can learn from it. Much more than earth science. Yeah, it's <laughs> so true. All right, well, before we wrap up, one other thing that I like to ask people, um, the working title of this podcast is Getting Real. That that may change, but I am interested for you because you've had these pretty big intersection points of when do you feel that life really got real for you? Like what at what point were you like, this is getting real and I need to kind of stand up and pay attention or there was such a shift that um, it really made an impact on either redirecting you or that led you to where you are now? I need to hear that. I'm sorry, I know it was a long question, yeah, but no. like, yeah. I need to hear, because it sounded like there was a couple questions in there. I think it's really just about, uh, without using the expletive, this blank just got real, right? So right. like when when in your life, and maybe it happened a couple of times. I think it did happen a couple of times, because I knew, I knew uh, blank was getting real for a long time, but I just didn't do anything about it, mm -hmm. right? So... I knew it was real, and then rather than do anything about it, I would let those feelings of shame and inadequacy perpetuate themselves, you know, um, in a cyclical way to where I, you know, I just, there was so much self-loathing, I couldn't act on it. So the key for me mm -hmm. in a life that everybody has with peaks and valleys, and I think at your lowest valley point, whatever it is, that's when blank gets real and you affect some change. So the key for me as a person is to live my life more in the middle mm -hmm. and when i go in the valley don't go as deep and don't stay there as long mm -hmm. so um Be uh, consciously managing that right yeah. so rather than looking like on a heart monitor where it's yeah. going up and down and up and down i want to be here and then it might go down but i need to catch myself mm -hmm. um because i am very self-aware so you know that usually reveals itself now for me like in terms of like weight or something like that it's mm -hmm. like wow I've, I've had a bad couple weeks of weight so to answer your question when did things get real there were markers there were periods like things got real but i didn't do anything then i affected some change then a routine set in and i didn't like something else so i need to do some more so for most of my life i attended bar four or five nights a week right i'm married to somebody wonderful i don't want to be out four and five nights a week so what can I do as somebody who didn't graduate college but has these other skills? What can I do? So I started, you know, working for myself and trying to create right. this other thing. So, can I just a follow up to that because I think it's such an interesting piece. Is what what drives you? Because that requires a lot of motivation. A lot of what you've done requires a ton of self motivation and self reliance. Where does that come from? What drives you? How do you have the tenacity to do that? Um, see, it's so nice that you say that because I feel like I could always be doing more, right? Uh, I want to be doing more. Um, but it's just, uh, I would say for my dad, like I have a friend who's about my age who hasn't worked in like five years. Uh, I don't know how you can let that happen. Right. Like I, I just want to be doing more. I know I can do more. I wasted so much time doing nothing. So I just feel like I, you know, selfishly have things to offer, whether it be creatively or professionally or personally. So I could and should and want to be doing more. So um, where does it come from? I don't know. Just accountability, some antiquated notion of being a man. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I just, uh, you know, those days where I'm, it's like 
11.30 and I'm still on the couch, I'm like, gosh, I haven't done anything yet. Like, right. let me turn the TV off or get off my phone or go do something, you know? Again, that would be like a valley where I catch right. myself soon. You know, if I'm doing that for four or five days, I've been in that valley too long. So, do you feel like when you're productive and when things are happening, you feel good? Like, you feel One better? inspires the other. It's like... Yeah. It's like, oh, I feel good. Maybe I'll go to the gym. Oh, good. I went to the gym. Maybe I'll eat better. Cool. I've done those. I feel like doing more. Like, yes, energy begets energy. So healthy choices inspire more healthy choices. But it works in reverse even quicker. Yeah. So, you know, poor eating inspires self-loathing, inspires more poor eating, inspires more apathy. So, and then, you know, so, yeah, like try to snap out of it. The minute you see yourself going, like read something, walk somewhere. Pet a dog. Your, I don't yeah, care. Change right. your reality. Yeah. All right. Well, before we wrap, just a couple, a plug for you in terms of um, where people can see you if doing stand-up, but also like your workshops. Like how can people find out more about what you're doing? Uh, well, we were talking about this uh, before we went on. I need to rebrand, but I'm on uh, Twitter at Petey Berg. Um, I'm Pete.Bergen on Instagram, and I'm Pete Bergen on Facebook. My website, PeteBergen.com, is um, supremely outdated. Like, I need to update it with, like, I haven't put performance stuff on there, but my phone number's on there, you know, that sort of thing. So if you go to PeteBergen.com or find Pete Bergen on any other social media, reach out. Um, I post ad nauseum when and where I'm performing, and, you know... People have reached out to me to do corporate trainings for, you know, mm-hmm. public speaking and, and team building and stuff like that. And, of course, I love working with the kids. Well, I love that, too, because I was someone that was in the corporate space for so long. And I think the more creative you can get with both young and adult learners around this collaboration piece and communication piece and mixing up the reality of, like, you can be super creative when you kind of shake the, the old cobwebs out <laughs> so the fact that you use that to to help groups and teams i think is awesome so thank, thank you. you for your time thank you i really appreciate it this thanks for the awesome. coffee it was yeah. delicious paul <laughs>